If I was asked to give you a text today, it would be verse 23 of Ezra chapter 8. Let's just read that verse. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. In the last message preached in this Ezra series, the subject was the hand of God upon the man of God. Five times in Ezra chapter 7 and 8, we read of the hand of God upon Ezra and his colleagues as they served the Lord in those times. That same kind of language is used in many other scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments, used concerning servants of God and the people of God down through the generations. In studying the use of that phrase, the hand of God, we concluded in that message a few weeks back that the reference is essentially to the Holy Spirit resting upon these servants of God and enabling them to do the work that would have been impossible for mere men left to themselves to accomplish. The main point developed in that previous message is that the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra and his companions in answer to prayer. Of this they themselves testified, as we find in chapter 8 here and verse 22, those words, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him. I want you to notice that that is actually a biblical statement of truth. The Holy Spirit comes upon the servants of God in answer to prayer. That's a fact that is verified, as I've intimated already, in much Scripture. For example, the Lord Himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The hand of God came on Him as He prayed. The apostles had the Spirit of God fall upon them in answer to prayer. And so we could go through references, not necessary, but these are sufficient just to show these examples, and others could be adduced, that a clear pattern is set out in the Word of God. The hand of God, the Spirit of God, comes upon the Lord's people as they seek Him in prayer. And therefore, the Lord's church today, and always, of course, must continually give herself to prayer and to this indispensable experience of having the hand of God upon us and upon our life and our ministry and our witness in this world. As I've just noted with you, those words in verse 22 actually form a theological and a spiritual fact. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him. In that verse 22, you will notice, as I showed you in that message a couple of weeks ago, Ezra and his brethren had spoken unto the king in these terms, that God's hand would be upon all those who would ask of Him and seek Him for that experience. You see, they had spoken to the king in that fashion, and therefore they were then ashamed to ask of the king a military escort for their journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that's the context here. They haven't yet left Babylon. This man, Ezra, the whole of chapter 7 8 described this. They're on the way, or they're about to embark on the way, and they said to the king that we don't need a military escort because God's hand is on us. 
And yet, therefore, you will find in verse 22 these words, I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. That word ashamed in verse 22 means to become pale. Now, very often when somebody is filled with shame or embarrassment, they, their, their face becomes red. But in this case, the Hebrew word for shame means to become pale. And the thought is this, that as Ezra dwelt on the matter of the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, he grew pale at the thought of asking for a military escort because that would have reflected very little trust in his God. And therefore, in the context of the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, they didn't do that. They believed that the Lord would protect His people, and therefore they did not ask for an escort or a military accompaniment to go with them all the way, those hundreds of miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. They believed that God would look after them. It doesn't mean that Others in the Bible never asked for a military escort. If I had time today, I could show you that happened among God's people. But on this occasion, they've already said to the king, we don't need a military escort. And as they thought about that, and then they heard about the enemies in the way, well, they grew pale at the thought that if they now asked for such an escort, they would be letting their God down. You know, you need to be very careful what you say because you get yourself into a corner and that's exactly what was happening here to some degree. They put themselves into a corner. They'd said to the king, we don't need an escort. Then they heard about the enemies lying in wait. And maybe they wondered, we should have asked for an escort. But you see, they have, they have committed themselves and they have to go through with it now. And they look to the Lord to take care of them. But here, here's the point. They could look to the Lord with confidence because the Lord had said through His prophet Jeremiah, many, many years before, had given us promise that He would bring them from Babylon to Jerusalem. I'm not going to take time today to take you to Jeremiah chapter 29, 11 to 14. You can look it up yourselves, and I've taken you there actually many times before, even when I did the study in Daniel. But in those verses, you have God saying to His people in prophecy, the thoughts that I think toward you are not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of peace to give you an expected end. And He goes on to say that after many days I will bring you back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so with that promise in mind, they therefore set themselves to return to Babylon from, or to Jerusalem from Babylon, and they set the whole matter before the Lord. And while they didn't seek for a king's earthly, an earthly king's protection, they did set themselves to pray to the heavenly king. And so look at verse 23, 23, and here you have it. So, against this background in verse 22, so we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. Notice from these words a very important lesson. God's sovereignty must not be made the excuse for the neglect of spiritual duties, like praying. Rather, His sovereignty 
should cause us to seek His favor. You see, God had sovereignly said, I will bring you back. There was no doubt about it. And so they did not turn that into an excuse for laziness, slothfulness. They didn't sit back there in Babylon and say, we're all right, we will, we will make it. No, they began to pray. They began to lay hold on God. And that's what I mean. The sovereignty of God must not be made an excuse for the neglect of spiritual duties. Rather, His sovereignty should move us and cause us to seek His favor for the fulfillment of His promises. Note that lesson as I come today to look with you at a few other thoughts about this matter of seeking for the hand of the Lord upon us as we seek to do His work. That's the theme. That's, again, what we're looking at today. We didn't get time to deal with this fully last in that last message, so I come back to it now by the help of the Lord. And we'll notice a few matters that arise from these verses. I want us to look, first of all, at the earnestness of seeking for the hand of the Lord. Uh, verse 23 says, So we besought our God. No, it doesn't read that way. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. The hand of the Lord was sought in prayer, but it was accompanied, that is, the prayer was accompanied by fasting. And in that way, the earnestness of their cry to the Lord for His hand to be on them is revealed. It is underlined by the reference to fasting. Now, the Bible reveals that fasting was often employed by the Lord's people when they confronted serious situations in their service for the Lord. It was the case here in Ezra's day, as we're seeing. You can look at Nehemiah sometime, chapter 1 and verse number 4, because he comes later and as he hears about all the desolation of Jerusalem and the gates burned with fire and the fact that God is moving his heart to go back to Jerusalem and labor there. He's filled with great concern and, and even great fear. And we're told in Nehemiah 1.4, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we can go to different other verses, which I will not take time to do, because the Bible has many, many examples of the people of God, the church of God, in every generation, getting before the Lord to pray, but accompanied, the praying accompanied by fasting. And there's where we see the earnestness, the fervency of their seeking after the Lord in prayer. Now, our own confession of faith, I felt it very important just to mention this. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 21 states this, that fasting is right and is proper in certain occasions. It says in the confession, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in an holy and religious manner. The, the chapter there, the section there, refers to solemn fastings upon special occasions. So our forefathers, the framers of our own confession, made it absolutely clear that fasting is a biblical exercise. It is a, biblic and a, a biblical and a spiritual exercise. You see, fasting was ordained of God. Let me say this that there's actually no stated commandment in the Bible to fast. Now, there's a commandment to pray and a commandment to serve God and so on, 
but you'll never find a commandment to fast. Why is that? Well, for the simple reason that when God's people went to pray at various times, they felt so exercised about it. They felt so moved to pray. And I mentioned this a few weeks back, that the fasting spontaneously and naturally came into play. I'll say more about that in a moment or two. But let me take you to Jonah chapter 3 and show you something very interesting. I believe it's interesting because it actually reveals to us in a certain way that among his people in ancient times, fasting was known and fasting was practiced. And if you'll turn to Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 4, you will see this coming out in a a very interesting way as I put it. Jonah 3 verse number 4. It says, So Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The well-known story of Jonah. He goes to Nineveh, begins to preach. His one message is, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now what is the reaction? What is the response from the pagan people of the city of Nineveh? That's the vital thing. These people in Nineveh are not believers. They're not Israelites. They're not among God's covenant people at all. They are pagan. They are idolaters. They worship in in their own way the, the gods that they had invented, but they don't know the Lord. And yet the strange thing is, the striking thing is, when they heard Jonah's message, as it says in verse number four, verse number five, they did this. The people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. Now, do you see that? Now, what does that teach you and me today? It teaches us that fasting was ordained of God because these pagan people spontaneously call for a fast upon hearing the message of the coming judgment. And that was a natural expression of humiliation and repentance by pagans, and it would actually argue that from ancient times men practiced fasting as an accompaniment of a serious approach to God. Now you need to go back with me in your mind here. Because you see, the Assyrians, that's who the Ninevites are, are. they're Assyrians, or the Canaanites, or whoever you care to mention. All those peoples descended from a common ancestor, namely Adam. And God had taught Adam and had taught his sons about praying. The gospel was revealed to those men at the very beginning, as we well know. And therefore they were praying men, and they were fasting men. And you'll find fasting in the book of Genesis. Fasting was known in men's hearts because they knew God. And then as time came, and the earth was filled with people, and all the nations evolved and were scattered here and there and yonder, yet they carried with them this ancient understanding that to seek your God earnestly may actually require getting down before that God to fast. And so on these pagan people in Jonah's day, it was inherently there. Because the very first thing they did, they set themselves to fast and to call upon the Lord. So how would they know that? Because their 
they're far away from the days of Adam or whoever you care to mention in the book of, 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 of Genesis, the early days of world history. How do they know this? Because it was naturally ingrained into their souls. Even though they're dark and they're pagan and they're wicked and they're ungodly, it's there by nature. And they come before God and they cry to heaven. So fasting was ordained of God. And therefore you will find throughout the history of the Bible, the people of God, this is why there's no commandment to fast. Fasting was naturally brought to the surface because it was ingrained in them. They're in difficult days. They realize they're not fit for the hour. That's what Ezra felt. So he calls for a fast. And that brings out more and more and more to our hearts today what fasting really is. It is a spontaneous reaction of people who realize a serious situation has come and for a time they're willing to do without their food because fasting is abstaining from food or sleep or other comforts and getting before God. They feel this enormity of the occasion and they get before the Lord and you'll find this, as I said, interspersed throughout the Word of God. Jehoshaphat fasted when he heard about the hordes of the enemy coming against him, a million men arriving on Judah's shores, and he called for a fast. Or as I mentioned, Nehemiah, and here's Ezra. Or you go to the New Testament, you'll find the very same thing. And you remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. When his disciples are confronted with that boy who's demon-possessed and they're helpless to cast out the demon, and what did the Lord say to them? This kind cometh not forth but by prayer and fasting. He's saying to the disciples, you need to get before your God and earnestly seek Him for His hand to be upon you that this young lad might be delivered from satanic opposition and satanic oppression. And there needed to be therefore a serious consideration given to this matter of fasting. And so I show you this, that fasting was ordained of God, not commanded by Him, but it was built into man at the very beginning, and it came out again and again and again, and especially with the Lord's people, as we're seeing, whether it's Ezra or Nehemiah or whoever in the Bible, it came out when they were facing difficult days. You know what it is? A, it is a fact, men and women. When you are afraid of something, and your stomach begins to churn, with fear, what will you not do then? You will not sit down and eat a feed. You will forget all about food. And we all experience that. Isn't that right? Why is that? Because you realize your own helplessness in the face of an enormous difficulty. And I tell you, it's a feeling that is there because that's how God made man to, to show to him, you need me. You need my grace. You need my intervention. You need to forget about your own efforts. You need to forget about food and comforts for a time and seek me. It's built into man. We're seeing it here with the heathen and we're seeing it with God's people. See, fasting was practiced, therefore, as an assistance to prayer. Other scriptures bring this out, this matter of the assistance that fasting is to prayer. Like Acts 14, 23, they prayed with fasting. 
Or 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And I could mention other places where the two are brought together in a fashion that is designed to show that fasting gives assistance, contributes assistance to the believer or the church in the place of prayer. So look here at Ezra 8 and verse number 21, and it says there, Then I proclaimed a fast. This is a dangerous situation. I've just explained it to you in my introduction. They're on their way back from Babylon, or they soon will be. They've discovered that their enemy's lying on the way. What are they going to do? Well, here's Ezra's response. He proclaimed a fast. And he began to pray along with his brethren. So fasting and, and praying go together. I must say this at this stage. It's appropriate time to bring it in. Abstaining from food does not make a person holy, nor does it increase a person's spirituality. But what matters is the purpose for which fasting exists, namely to contribute to the intensity of a set season for prayer. Now that prayer time could be half an hour, it could be an hour, or it could be three hours, whatever it might be. Some people have the the notion that, well, fasting means you, you go through a whole day or a whole night and you don't eat. Now people could do that and do that, may I say. But the time element doesn't really matter. It could be a short time or a longer time. The point is, when we get down to pray, if we're in business with God, let me tell you something, you'll not be sitting in the prayer meeting drinking coffee or eating donuts. You know why I say that? Because that's the way things are going. Worship services in general, nowadays in many churches are like that. You come to the worship service and you bring your coffee in. You bring some food in. I know you might have to give your child a wee biscuit to keep them happy. That's not what I'm talking about here. But that's the way worship services are going. And it's it's actually a, a revelation and a betrayal of the frivolity and the lightness and the lack of earnestness and fervency that there is now among those who professedly gather together to worship the Lord. My dear friend, If we are earnestly seeking God in the place of worship, having something to eat during the course of it won't even enter your mind. Now, with a long preacher, and that's not me, of course, your stomach might rumble, but you're willing to sit and listen and say, I need to hear this. O God, deal with my soul, work on my heart, Draw me closer to your side. Show me your will, whatever it might be. There is an inseparable connection between fasting and praying because fasting is designed to assist us in prayer for a set time, unfettered by the indulgence of bodily and physical appetites. That's the reason for it. That's the whole purpose of it as we look at the Word of God carefully. And may I therefore say this, the practice of fasting must come from the heart. It must be from the heart. I remember in the early days of the free church, fasting was frequently followed. 
we have gotten away from that, sadly. Things have slipped. Why is that? Because we're not in the dead earnestness of seeking after God in which we used to be found. But may I just add this on, as I've said here, fasting must come from the heart. You see, many fast as a form of penance. The Roman Catholic Church has fasting at various times. But the people who fast under the dictates of Romanism believe that they're working up merit with God. It's part of their whole works religion. Now, this will please God. This will aim them. This will gain them some standing with God. But you look at the Bible and you find that the Bible shows that God's people fasted. It was when the inner man was seeking after the Lord. It came from the heart. It came out of the soul. It was not something mechanical. It was not something liturgical. It was not just done as an effort to satisfy God's demands. It was done in order to lay hold on God, as I said, unfettered and unrestricted from every bodily and physical appetite. And it is good for the soul, may I say, to lay hold on God privately. How much time do you spend in prayer? Just think about that. Say it was half an hour or an hour, and you're before the Lord. And you might arise on your knees or if you're, whatever way your posture is, and you might say, well, I wasn't fasting. Now, yes, my dear friend, you were fasting because you laid aside physical appetites, as I call them, whether it's eating or drinking or whatever, taking a snooze. You set it all aside and you get down before God for a period of time and there you earnestly seek His face. That's what it's all about. And when we are seeking God earnestly, then the fasting comes in naturally. It comes in spontaneously. And that's why we need to be very careful about saying we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting next month. Because that may sound mechanical, and I can tell you one sure thing, your flesh will react to that. And the flesh will say to you, that's a drudgery, that's laborious, that's not spiritual. We don't need to fast. You see what I'm saying here? It must come from the heart Hearts that are burdened, hearts that are concerned, hearts that see the awful sin of the day, that see the departure from God that's all around us and even among us. And yet, why is it that what used to be is no longer happening? Because let me tell you something, we are in greater need of God than we have ever been in our day and times, our generations. We need the Lord as never before. Nehemiah's fasting went along with his mourning and his weeping and the confession of sin that he poured out before God. And he fasted along with all that. He fasted as a token of the brokenness and the repentance of his heart. You know, Isaiah 58 is a very enlightening passage. I can only look at it with you quickly. Please turn to it now as we simply make this point and really emphasize it that Fasting is a mark of earnestness and seeking after God. Turn to Isaiah 58 and look with me at verse number 1. 
And God says to Isaiah the prophet, Cry aloud, spare not. Isaiah 58, 1. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Show, on, show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, there's the basic command that Isaiah is to preach to God's people, show them their transgressions, show them their sins. But we go on into verse 2 and it says this, it says this, Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. What do we find here? We find that God tells Isaiah to expose the sins of Israel, but it's the sins of a religious people. And they're going through the motions. They're going through the open motions of religion, as verse 2 shows you. Verse 3 tells you something else. The act included in that, they're fasting. Look at verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Now listen to what God has to say in response. You see, they've been called upon to repent of their sin. They were religious. They were going through the form and the ceremony. They were even fasting. And then they were wondering why God took no notice of them. And God gives them an answer. Look at verse 3. Part B, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exalt, ex, or sorry, exact all your labors. What does that mean? They were fasting for the single purpose of having God take notice of them. But they were not fasting because they were earnestly and with repentance seeking after God for the forgiveness of her sins. You find the same in the Gospels. The Pharisees stood at the street corners. They prayed openly. They prayed voluminously. And they added their fasting in. And they said to themselves, God must surely think a lot of us. Look at us. Our fasting, our praying, our lamenting, and so on. But all the while, like that man in the temple in Luke 18, they were rejoicing over their actions and they believed that God would take notice of them and would bless them and would be favorable toward them because they were merely going through the rituals. And that's why I sound a warning. I sound the warning, my friend, about all of your spiritual activity. Are you only going through the motions? Just leave aside fasting. That's unheard of anyway. But what about prayer? What about reading the Word? What about endeavoring and striving after godliness? What about the matter of having an appetite for more truth? Wanting to understand the things of God as never before. You see, is it a mere mechanical exercise? Are you going through the, the motions only and there's no heart in it? There's no, there's no depth of desire in it? There is nothing that is earnest or fervent? And back there in Isaiah 58, you'll also find, we haven't time to look at it altogether now, but you'll find in verse number 4, 3b and 4, that with all their fasting, they were covetous, they were unmerciful, and therefore they weren't fasting with hearts of brokenness and contrition over their sins, and God disregarded their fasting. It's very like what I mentioned a while ago about the church of Rome. And even pagan religions to this day fast. 
and deprive themselves of food and beat themselves and cut themselves and go on their knees up mountains. And all of that isn't the indication they believe this will get them to whatever they think heaven is. And we repudiate all that. But at the same time, men and women, the Bible shows us that if we're in earnest seeking after God with all our heart and soul and mind, then fasting will come in, but so will every other quality of a spiritual kind that will mark our lives. We'll have an appetite for God, a longing for the reality of the Holy Spirit. All these things will be there, and there must be earnestness, therefore, in seeking for the hand of God upon us. That's the issue. That's the main theme of the last message. And this message, we desperately need the hand of God on us, on our church, on our land, on our people, and how we're going to get it only as we seek Him. But as we seek Him without hindrance, without it being a mere mechanical thing, but earnestly with our whole being wrapped up in it and God moving in response and visiting as He sees His people seeking Him with heart and soul and strength and mind. Turn back to Ezra, and as I come toward the end of this message today, I've looked at the earnestness of seeking for the hand of God, this whole matter of fasting. And that's not an exhaustive message, by the way, on the subject of of fasting. We could see more about it if we had time. But the second main point and the final main point is the evidence that the hand of the Lord had been secured. As I mentioned a while ago, through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find this expression quite a few times. It's found five times in Ezra's book. The hand of our God was upon us. And as we look at those instances, and I only can can go through them quickly here, you will find that God's hand was secured in various ways and for different reasons. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. This is actually a statement about Ezra before he ever got to Jerusalem, but it's really summing up the kind of man he was. Ezra 7, verse number 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylon. That means he's intending to go up. He was already scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And listen to this. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. What do you have there? You have one evidence that God's hand was in this man in that there was a divine supply of all that was needed for the work of God. That's what it's really saying. It says there, verse 6, that the king granted them all his request. Those are the vital words. King Artaxerxes, he gave Ezra and his people everything that they needed for the journey. Even though they didn't take the military escort, they got a lot of other things from Artaxerxes. And actually, verse 11 of chapter 7 through to verse 26 gives you the account of all that Artaxerxes gave as a result of the hand of God being upon Ezra. You see, the hand of God was already on this man. And he needs the hand of God on him again and again, as we're going to see. But there was a divine supply. The hand of God, the Spirit of God resting upon his people, upon his work, actually guarantees that every need will be met. Now, there's why we pray for the hand of God, that the needs of the work of God, even financially, 
materially will be met, never mind spiritually, but I can't, I can't stay with that. There was divine strength. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. It says, toward the end of that verse, I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. So God's hand's on this man. Onaman responds to prayer. And as God's hand on him is on him, everything that is required begins to fall into place. And here's another of them. He receives a supernatural strength to be the servant of God. He's a mere man, Ezra. A godly man, a spiritual man, but a man only. He has no strength. He has no power of his own on which to draw. And knowing that, knowing his weakness, knowing his frailty, he leans on the Lord even more. He depends on his God. He had no confidence in the flesh. And then the hand of God came down on him, and he was strengthened by that hand. Is that not needed, I ask you this morning? Divine supply, divine strengthening. But a third thing, into chapter 8, here we find divine servants. As I sum this up for you, chapter 8, verse 18, And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. Now, the context here is, Ezra suddenly noticed there were no Levites in the group. Look at the end of verse 15, found there none of the sons of Levi. Who were the Levites? The Levites were the assistants to the priest or the priests of Israel. And here they are going back to Jerusalem. They're going back there to set up worship in the temple, offer the sacrifices, etc., etc. But there are no Levites. And what did Ezra do when he noticed this? Well, you'll find that he gives out the word that we need we need these men. We need ministers. Look at the end of verse 17, that they should bring us ministers for the house of our God. Now verse 18, and by the good hand of our God, as we have just read, they brought us a man of understanding. You know, it didn't stop there. It just wasn't one man. A man of understanding, he's called, or he, he's of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the sons of Israel. But then it mentions another man called Sherebiah. At the end of verse 18, his sons and brethren, 18. And then a lot more in verse 19. 20 men in verse 19. And verse 20, you'll find 100 or 220 there. You see, the hand of God came down and He answered prayer exceeding abundantly above all that they ever asked or thought. We need a man, they thought at first. There's no man. There's no Levite. And suddenly, as it were, they're swamped with men. All good men, obviously, to do the work of God. Let me say to the congregation today, there's a very apt application of this. We've been telling you, it's the mind of the session of this congregation to add to the Kurt session. And how is that obtained? As we pray with earnestness and God brings us along or raises up, however you want to put it, the right men. Men who are already there. You see, if you take the man mentioned here, that one man at first, a man of understanding, he was already there. Now he's noticed. 
Now he emerges. And then his brethren with him. They're already there. These are not novices. These are not new converts. These men have already been there. And it's God who brings them out and brings them to light because His hand comes down. And therefore there are servants as well as strength and supply. But you know there was something more. Look at chapter 8 verse 31. And with this we come to a close. Chapter 8 verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go on to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. What do we find here? Divine security. The hand of our God was upon us. And notice the strength of the enemy there because in verse 31 it refers to the hand of the enemy. This enemy is not some weak bunch of people. This enemy mentioned here is comprised of those who are strong, who are set against Ezra and his friends and the whole company that are coming back from Babylon. And therefore there's a dangerous situation. So my dear friend, the enemy is strong. The whole point is, the hand of our God is stronger. And therefore, the divine security given overcame the strength of the enemy, but also the subtlety of the enemy. Look at verse 18 again, 31, sorry. And notice where they were. The hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. Well, that's a little part of the verse that we could just pass over. They lay in wait by the way. They're hiding by that roadside, that uh, particular uh, way that led from Babylon to Jerusalem. And you know, that was a long journey, as I said earlier. And there are many hiding places. There would have been many hiding places. And there they are. And they're lying subtly. And they're lurking by the wayside. There's the insidiousness of the devil. There is the cunning of the old serpent. He lies by the way. He's there to strike. He's there to inject this poison when he can get a chance. But you see, the point is, there was divine security because the hand of God came down and kept them. You know, we have no idea, brethren and sisters, of how the Lord's security has been our portion, and we're not even aware of it. There have been times when the enemy was ready to strike and do his devious work, however you want to describe it, and all these terms certainly describe it. And unknown to us, God's hand was on his work. And God preserved and God delivered as his hand moved, the Spirit operated. And you will find that the hand of God, the Spirit of God, caused Ezra's journey to be taken and to be finished. If you go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 9, I want you to see this as we close out here at this point. Because remember what I said, what you have in chapter 7 in the first instance is just a, like a preview of what actually happened. And here in verse 9 of chapter 7, you've got a kind of a summary. It says, For upon the first day of the first month began he to, to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem. It took him four months, as you can see from that verse. But listen, 
On the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem. Here's the end of the story. Here's the end of the journey. But how did it all happen? According to the good hand of his God upon him. Now, my dear friend, the Lord knew the end of the story. Think about it that way. You understand what I'm saying here? Chapter 7, 1 through to 10, even the whole chapter is a preview of what actually happens in in chapter 8. And so chapter 7 is not describing the actual journey. It's giving us an insight to what was going to happen. And yet it tells us that the journey was finished, that they're going to get there without fail. Why? According to the good hand of our God upon us. That's security, isn't it? The Lord knows your journey, Christian. He knows what lies ahead. He knows every detail. He knows every twist, every turn. He knows every enemy lying by the way. He knows all the disappointments and discouragements and, and whatever. He knows it all. But you know, if, we, if you and I today could see the annals of God, we would find that the end of your journey is written down that you will make it, that the church of Christ will continue on, just taking that element of things. Someone said to me something very interesting recently, and I thought it, it was quoted from a man of God. I can't even remember who he was, but this man of God said that the enemies of the Lord think that the church is dead but there's no body in the casket. There's no body in the coffin because the church of God cannot die. It continues. Through all its ups and downs and struggles and difficulties and trials, and the final chapter is already written, and God has foreseen what He will do and what His people will do. It's all taken care of. It doesn't mean, as I said earlier, that we don't fast and pray. It doesn't mean that we don't labor, but it does mean that we can be comforted because God is in charge. And the final installment is already written, and all that's required is it to be unfolded and take place. So be encouraged. Seek for the hand of God in your life on your family, on your friends. Pray earnestly about that. Spend time with God. Forget about everything else. Leave aside all the legitimate exercises in which you could engage instead of praying. Get with God and pray. Give time to it. Let us as a church give time to it. When our prayer meetings are overflowing, when people give themselves to prayer in this congregation, then we might think of announcing the fasting that I mentioned a while ago. But you know, we're so far away, we need to get to first base. And then from then on, we see how the Lord works. I challenge you this morning. It's not a matter of You've just had nights of prayer. It's not a matter of that. That's grand. That's good. That's necessary. It's not a matter of me saying, oh, such and such a date, we're going to have another special prayer meeting. 
what about the prayer meetings now? I remember a young fellow in this congregation. He's actually in the ministry now. You can guess all you want. I'm not telling you who it was, but that fellow said to me one day, he was only saved and he'd enjoyed the men's prayer meeting. And he said, Mr. Greer, could we not have two of these every month? I said, when this one's overflowing, then we'll think about a second one. Brethren and sisters, that's where we are. Let us lay hold on God. And then we go on from there. Let us bow in prayer. And may God write His word in all our minds and hearts for Jesus' sake. And Lord, we pray that the blessed Spirit will come. The hand of God will be upon us. We will know movings of Thy presence and power in our midst. Deliver us from our deadness, our apathy, carelessness, whatever is in the way, Lord, deliver us from it. And give a heart for Thee, a heart that lays hold on God and stays laying hold on God until He comes, until we secure the answer. Bless us, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all thy children, both this day and then forevermore. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen.